0: Chapter One of Isaac Walton's Lives of John Donne, Henry Wotton, Richard Hooker, and George Herbert by Isaac Walton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One John Donne, Part One Life of Dr. John Donne, Introduction Prefixed to the First Collection of His Sermon. If that great master of language and art, Sir Henry Wotton, the late provost of Eton College, had lived to see the publication of these sermons, he had presented the world with the author's life exactly written. And t'was pity he did not, for it was a work worthy his undertaking, and he was to undertake it. Betwixt whom and the author there was so mutual a knowledge, and such a friendship contracted in their youth, as nothing but death could force a separation and though their bodies were divided their affections were not for that learned knight's love followed his friend's fame beyond death and the forgetful grave which he testified by entreating me whom he acquainted with his design to inquire of some particulars that concerned it not doubting but my knowledge of the author and love to his memory might make my diligence useful I did most gladly undertake the employment, and continued it with great content, till I had made my collection ready to be augmented and completed by his matchless pen, but then death prevented his intentions. When I heard that sad news, and heard also that these sermons were to be printed, and want the author's life, which I thought to be very remarkable, indignation or grief, indeed i know not which transported me so far that i reviewed my forsaken collections and resolved the world should see the best plain picture of the author's life that my artless pencil guided by the hand of truth could present to it and if i shall now be demanded as once pompey's poor bondman was the grateful wretch had been left alone on the seashore with the forsaken dead body of his once glorious lord and master, and was then gathering the scattered pieces of an old broken boat to make a funeral-pile to burn it, which was the custom of the Romans. Who art thou, that alone hast the honor to bury the body of Pompey the Great? So who am I that do thus officiously set the author's memory on fire? I hope the question will prove to have in it more of wonder than disdain but wonder indeed the reader may that i who profess myself artless should presume with my faint light to shore forth his life whose very name makes it illustrious but be this to the disadvantage of the person represented certain i am it is to the advantage of the beholder who shall here see the author's picture in a natural dress which ought to beget faith in what is spoken. For he who wants skill to deceive may safely be trusted. And if the author's glorious spirit, which now is in heaven, can have the leisure to look down and see me, the poorest, the meanest of all his friends, in the midst of this officious duty, confident I am that he will not disdain this well-meant sacrifice to his memory for whilst his conversation made me and many others happy below, I know his humility and gentleness were then eminent, and I have heard Divine say, Those virtues that were but sparks upon earth become great and glorious flames in heaven. Before I proceed further, I am to entreat the reader to take notice that when Dr. Dunn's sermons were first printed, this was then my excuse for daring to write his life and i dare not now appear without it master john Donne was born in london in the year fifteen seventy three of good and virtuous parents and though his own learning and other multiplied merits may justly appear sufficient to dignify both himself and his posterity yet the reader may be pleased to know that his father was masculinely and lineally descended from a very ancient family in wales where many of his name now live that deserve and have great reputation in that country by his mother he was descended of the family of the famous and learned sir thomas moore sometimes lord chancellor of england as also from that worthy and laborious judge Rastell, who left posterity the vast statutes of the law of this nation most exactly abridged he had his first breeding in his father's house where a private tutor had the care of him until the tenth year of his age and in his eleventh year was sent to the university of oxford having at that time a good command both of the french and latin tongue this and some other of his remarkable abilities made one then give this censure of him, that this age had brought forth another pica smirandula, of which story says that he was rather born than made wise by study. There he remained for some years at Hart Hall, having, for the advancement of his studies, tutors of several sciences to attend and instruct him, till time made him capable and his learning expressed in public exercises declared him worthy to receive his first degree in the schools which he forbore by advice from his friends who being for their religion of the romish persuasion were conscionably averse to some parts of the oath that is always tendered at those times and not to be refused by those that expect the titulary honor of their studies About the fourteenth year of his age he was transplanted from Oxford to Cambridge, where, that he might receive nourishment from both soils, he stayed till his seventeenth year, all which time he was a most laborious student, often changing his studies, but endeavouring to take no degree for the reasons formerly mentioned. About the seventeenth year of his age. He was removed to London, and then admitted into Lincoln's Inn, with an intent to study the law, where he gave great testimonies of his wit, his learning, and of his improvement in that profession which never served him for other use than an ornament and self-satisfaction. His father died before his admission to this society, and being a merchant left him his portion in money it was three thousand pounds his mother and those to whose care he was committed were watchful to improve his knowledge and to that end appointed him tutors both in the mathematics and in all the other liberal sciences to attend him but with these arts they were advised to instil into him particular principles of the romish church of which those tutors professed though secretly themselves to be members they had almost obliged him to their faith having for their advantage besides many opportunities the example of his dear and pious parents which was a most powerful persuasion and did work much upon him as he professeth in his preface to his pseudo-martyr a book of which the reader shall have some account in what follows He was now entered into the eighteenth year of his age, and at that time had betrothed himself to no religion that might give him any other denomination than a Christian, and reason and piety had both persuaded him that there could be no such sin as schism, if an adherence to some visible church were not necessary. About the nineteenth year of his age he, being then unresolved what religion to adhere to, and considering how much it concerned his soul to choose the most orthodox did therefore though his youth and health promised him a long life to rectify all scruples that might concern that presently lay aside all study of the law and of all other sciences that might give him a denomination and began seriously to survey and consider the body of divinity as it was then controverted betwixt the Reformed and the Roman Church. And as God's blessed Spirit did then awaken him to the search, and in that industry did never forsake him, they be his own words in his preface to the Pseudo martyr, so he calls the same Holy Spirit to witness this protestation, that in that disquisition and search, he proceeded with humility and diffidence in himself, and by that which he took to be the safest way, namely frequent prayers and an indifferent affection to both parties. And indeed truth had too much light about her to be hid from so sharp an inquirer, and he had too much ingenuity not to acknowledge he had found her. Being to undertake this search, he believed the cardinal Bellarmin to be the best defender of the Roman cause, and therefore betook himself to the examination of his reasons. The cause was weighty, and wilful delays had been inexcusable, both towards God and his own conscience. He therefore proceeded in this search with all moderate haste, and about the twentieth year of his age did show the then dean of gloucester whose name my memory hath now lost all the cardinal's work marked with many weighty observations under his own hand which works were bequeathed by him at his death as a legacy to a most dear friend about a year following he resolved to travel and the earl of essex going first to calais and after the island voyages the first anno 1596, the second 1597, he took the advantage of those opportunities, waited upon his lordship, and was an eye-witness of those happy and unhappy employments. But he returned not back into England till he had stayed some years, first in Italy and then in Spain, where he made many useful observations of those countries, their laws and manner of government and returned perfect in their languages the time that he spent in spain was at his first going into italy designed for travelling to the holy land and for viewing jerusalem and the sepulchre of our saviour but at his being in the furthest parts of italy the disappointment of company or of a safe convoy or the uncertainty of returns of money into those remote parts denied him that happiness which he did often occasionally mention with a deploration not long after his return into england that exemplary pattern of gravity and wisdom the lord ellesmere then keeper of the great seal the lord chancellor of england taking notice of his learning languages and other abilities and much affecting his person and behaviour, took him to be his chief secretary, supposing and intending it to be an introduction to some more weighty employment in the state, for which his lordship did often protest he thought him very fit. Nor did his lordship, in this time of Master Dunn's attendance upon him, account him to be so much his servant as to forget he was his friend, and to testify it did always use him with much courtesy, appointing him a place at his own table to which he esteemed his company and discourse to be a great ornament. He continued that employment for the space of five years, being daily useful and not mercenary to his friend, during which time he, I dare not say unhappily, fell into such a liking as, with her approbation, increased into a love with a young gentlewoman that lived in that family, who was niece to the Lady Ellesmere, and daughter to Sir George Moore, then Chancellor of the Garter and Lieutenant of the Tower. Sir George had some intimation of it, and, knowing prevention to be a great part of wisdom, did therefore remove her with much haste from that to his own house at Lowsley, in the county of Surrey. too late by reason of some faithful promises which were so interchangeably passed as never to be violated by either party. These promises were only known to themselves, and the friends of both parties used much diligence and many arguments to kill or cool their affections to each other, but in vain, for love is a flattering mischief that hath denied aged and wise men a foresight of those evils that too often prove to be the children of that blind father. A passion that carries us to commit errors, with as much ease as whirlwinds move feathers, and begets in us an unwearied industry to the attainment of what we desire. And such an industry did, notwithstanding much watchfulness against it. Bring them secretly together. I forbear to tell the manner how, and at last to a marriage too, without the allowance of those friends whose approbation always was and ever will be necessary to make even a virtuous love become lawful. And that the knowledge of their marriage might not fall, like an unexpected tempest, on those that were unwilling to have it so and that preapprehensions might make it the less enormous when it was known it was purposely whispered into the ear of many that it was so yet by none that could affirm it but to put a period to the jealousies of sir george doubt often begetting more restless thoughts than the certain knowledge of what we fear the news was in favour to mr dunn and with his allowance made known to sir george by his honorable friend and neighbor henry earl of northumberland but it was to sir george so immeasurably unwelcome and so transported him that as though his passion of anger and inconsideration might exceed theirs of love and error he presently engaged his sister the lady ellesmere to join with him to procure her lord to discharge Mr. Donne of the place he held under his lordship. This request was followed with violence, and though Sir George were remembered that errors might be over-punished, and desired therefore to forbear till second consideration might clear some scruples, yet he became restless until his suit was granted and the punishment executed and though the Lord Chancellor did not, at Mr. Dunn's dismission, give him such a commendation as the great Emperor Charles V did of his secretary Erasso, when he parted with him to his son and successor, Philip II, saying, that in his Erasso he gave to him a greater gift than all his estate and all the kingdoms which he then resigned to him. Yet the Lord Chancellor said, he parted with a friend and such a secretary as was fitter to serve a king than a subject. Immediately after his dismission from his service he sent a sad letter to his wife to acquaint her with it, and after the subscription of his name writ, John Dunn, and Dunn, Undone. And God knows it proved too true, for this bitter physic of Mr. Dunn's dismission was not enough to purge out all sir george's choler for he was not satisfied till mr dunn and his sometimes calm pupil in cambridge that married him namely samuel brooke who was after doctor in divinity and master of trinity college and his brother mr christopher brooke sometime mr dunn's chamber fellow at lincoln's inn who gave mr Donne his wife and witnessed the marriage were all committed to three several prisons mr dunn was first enlarged who neither gave rest to his body or brain nor to any friend in whom he might hope to have an interest until he had procured an enlargement for his two imprisoned friends he was now at liberty but his days were still cloudy and being past these troubles others did still multiply upon him for his wife was, to her extreme sorrow, detained from him, and though with Jacob he endured not a hard service for her, yet he lost a good one, and was forced to make good his title, and to get possession of her by a long and restless suit in law, which proved troublesome and sadly chargeable to him, whose youth and travel and needless bounty had brought his estate into a narrow compass. It is observed, and most truly, that silence and submission are charming qualities, and work most upon passionate men. And it proved so with Sir George. For these, and a general report of Mr. Dunn's merits, together with his winning behavior, which, when it would entice, had a strange kind of elegant, irresistible art. These, and time, had so dispassionated Sir George, that as the world had approved his daughter's choice, so he also could not but see a more than ordinary merit in his new son. And this at last melted him into so much remorse, for love and anger are so like agues as to have hot and cold fits and love in parents though it may be quenched yet it is easily rekindled and expires not till death denies mankind a natural heat that he laboured his son's restoration to his place using to that end both his own and his sister's powers to her lord but with no success for his answer was that though he was unfeignedly sorry for what he had done yet it was inconsistent with his place and credit to discharge and readmit servants at the request of passionate petitioners sir george's endeavour for mr donne's readmission was by all means to be kept secret for men do more naturally reluct for errors than submit to put on those blemishes that attend their visible acknowledgment but however it was not long before sir george appeared to be so far reconciled as to wish their happiness and not to deny them his paternal blessing but yet refused to contribute any means that might conduce to their livelihood mr dunn's estate was the greatest part spent in many and chargeable travels books and dear-bought experiences He, out of all employment that might yield a support for himself and wife, who had been curiously and plentifully educated, both their natures generous and accustomed to confer and not to receive courtesies, these and other considerations, but chiefly that his wife was to bear a part in his sufferings, surrounded him with many sad thoughts and some apparent apprehensions of want but his sorrows were lessened and his wants prevented by the seasonable courtesy of their noble kinsman sir francis wally of pyrford in surrey who entreated them to a cohabitation with him where they remained with much freedom to themselves and equal content to him for some years and as their charge increased she had yearly a child so did his love and bounty it hath been observed by wise and considering men that wealth hath seldom been the portion and never the mark to discover good people but that almighty god who disposeth all things wisely hath of his abundant goodness denied it he only knows why to many whose minds he hath enriched with the greater blessings of knowledge and virtue as the fairer testimonies of his love to mankind and this was the present condition of this man of so excellent erudition and endowments, whose necessary and daily expenses were hardly reconcilable with his uncertain and narrow estate, which I mentioned, for that at this time there was a most generous offer made him for the moderating of his worldly cares, the declaration of which shall be the next employment of my pen. God hath been so good to his church as to afford it in every age, some such men to serve at his altar as have been piously ambitious of doing good to mankind, a disposition that is so like to God himself that it owes itself only to him who takes a pleasure to behold it in his creatures. These times sixteen forty-eight, he did bless with many such some of which still live to be patterns of apostolical charity and of more than human patience. I have said this because I have occasion to mention one of them in my following discourse, namely, Dr. Morton, the most laborious and learned bishop of Durham, one that God hath blessed with perfect intellectuals and a cheerful heart at the age of ninety-four years, and is yet living one that in his days of plenty had so large a heart as to use his large revenue to the encouragement of learning and virtue and is now be it spoken with sorrow reduced to a narrow estate which he embraces without repining and still shows the beauty of his mind by so liberal a hand as if this were an age in which to-morrow were to care for itself I have taken a pleasure in giving the reader a short but true character of this good man, my friend, from whom I received the following relation. He sent to Mr. Dunn, and entreated to borrow an hour of his time for a conference the next day. After their meeting there was not many minutes past before he spake to Mr. Dunn to this purpose. Mr. Dunn, the occasion of sending for you is to propose to you what I have often revolved in my own thought since I last saw you, which, nevertheless, I will not declare but upon this condition, that you shall not return me a present answer, but forbear three days, and bestow some part of that time in fasting and prayer, and after a serious consideration of what I shall propose, then return to me with your answer deny me not, Mr. Dunn, for it is the effect of a true love which I would gladly pay as a debt due for yours to me." This request being granted, the doctor expressed himself thus. Mr. Dunn, I know your education and abilities, I know your expectation of a State employment, and I know your fitness for it, and I know, too, the many delays and contingencies that attend court promises. And let me tell you that my love, begot by our long friendship and your merits, hath prompted me to such an inquisition after your present temporal estate as makes me no stranger to your necessities, which I know to be such as your generous spirit could not bear if it were not supported with a pious patience. You know I have formerly persuaded you to waive your court hopes, and enter into holy orders, which I now again persuade you to embrace, with this reason added to my former request. The king hath yesterday made me dean of Gloucester, and I am also possessed of a benefice, the profits of which are equal to those of my deanery. I will think my deanery enough for my maintenance who am and resolve to die a single man and will quit my benefice and estate you in it which the patron is willing i shall do if god shall incline your heart to embrace this motion remember mr dunn no man's education or parts make him too good for this employment which is to be an ambassador for the god of glory that god who by a vile death opened the gates of life to mankind. Make me no present answer, but remember your promise, and return to me the third day with your resolution." At the hearing of this Mr. Dunn's faint breath and perplexed countenance gave a visible testimony of an inward conflict. But he performed his promise, and departed without returning an answer till the third day and then his answer was to this effect my most worthy and most dear friend since i saw you i have been faithful to my promise and have also meditated much of your great kindness which hath been such as would exceed even my gratitude but that it cannot do and more i cannot return you and i do that with a heart full of humility and thanks though I may not accept of your offer. But, sir, my refusal is not for that I think myself too good for that calling, for which kings, if they think so, are not good enough, nor for that my education and learning, though not eminent, may not, being assisted with God's grace and humility, render me in some measure fit for it but i dare make so dear a friend as you are my confessor some irregularities of my life have been so visible to some men that though i have i thank god made my peace with him by penitential resolutions against them and by the assistance of his grace banished them my affections yet this which god knows to be so is not so visible to man as to free me from their censures, and it may be that sacred calling from a dishonour. And besides, whereas it is determined by the best of casuists that God's glory should be the first end and a maintenance the second motive to embrace that calling, and though each man may propose to himself both together, yet the first may not be put last without a violation of conscience, which he that searches the heart will judge. And truly my present condition is such, that if I ask my own conscience whether it be reconcilable to that rule, it is at this time so perplexed about it, that I can neither give myself nor you an answer. You know, sir, who says, Happy is that man whose conscience doth not accuse him for that thing which he does. To these I might add other reasons that dissuade me, but I crave your favour that I may forbear to express them, and thankfully decline your offer. This was his present resolution, but the heart of man is not in his own keeping, and he was destined to this sacred service by a higher hand a hand so powerful as at last forced him to a compliance, of which I shall give the reader an account before I shall give a rest to my pen. Mr. Dunn and his wife continued with Sir Francis Wally till his death, a little before which time Sir Francis was so happy as to make a perfect reconciliation betwixt Sir George and his forsaken son and daughter. Sir George conditioning, by bond, to pay to Mr. Dunn eight hundred pounds at a certain date as a portion with his wife, or twenty pounds quarterly for their maintenance as the interest for it till the said portion was paid. Most of those years that he lived with Sir Francis he studied the civil and canon law in which he acquired such a perfection as was judged to hold proportion with many who had made that study the employment of their whole life. Sir Francis being dead, and that happy family dissolved, Mr. Dunn took for himself a house in Mitcham, near to Croydon in Surrey, a place noted for good air and choice company. There his wife and children remained and for himself he took lodgings in London, near to Whitehall, whither his friends and occasions drew him very often, and where he was as often visited by many of the nobility and others of this nation, who used him in their counsels of greatest consideration and with some rewards for his better subsistence. Nor did our own nobility only value and favour him but his acquaintance and friendship was sought for by most ambassadors of foreign nations and by many other strangers whose learning or business occasioned their stay in this nation he was much importuned by many friends to make his constant residence in london but he still denied it having settled his dear wife and children at mitcham and near some friends that were bountiful to them and him for they, God knows, needed it, and that you may the better now judge of the then present condition of his mind and fortune, I shall present you with an extract collected out of some few of his many letters. And the reason why I did not send an answer to your last week's letter was because it then found me under too great a sadness, and at present tis thus with me there is not one person but myself well of my family. I have already lost half a child, and with that mischance of hers, my wife has fallen into such a discomposure as would afflict her too extremely, but that the sickness of all her other children stupefies her, of one of which, in good faith, I have not much hope. And these meet with a fortune so ill provided for physic, and such relief, that if God should ease us with burials, I know not how to perform even that. But I flatter myself with this hope, that I am dying too, for I cannot waste faster than by such griefs. As for, from my hospital at Mitcham, John Donne, August 10 thus he did bemoan himself and thus in other letters for we hardly discover a sin when it is but an omission of some good and no accusing act with this or the former i have often suspected myself to be overtaken which is with an over earnest desire of the next life and though i know it is not merely a weariness of this because i had the same desire when i went with the tide and enjoyed fairer hopes than i do now yet i doubt worldly troubles have increased it tis now spring and all the pleasures of it displease me every other tree blossoms and i wither i grow older and not better my strength diminisheth, and my load grows heavier and yet i would fain be or do something But that I cannot tell what is no wonder in this time of my sadness, for to choose is to do, but to be no part of any body is as to be nothing, and so I am, and shall so judge myself, unless I could be so incorporated into a part of the world as by business to contribute some sustenation to the whole this i made account i began early when i understood the study of our laws but was diverted by leaving that and embracing the worst voluptuousness a hydroptic immoderate desire of human learning and languages beautiful ornaments indeed to men of great fortunes but mine was grown so low as to need an occupation which I thought I entered well into when I subjected myself to such a service as I thought might exercise my poor abilities, and there I stumbled and fell too, and now I am become so little or such a nothing that I am not a subject good enough for one of my own letters. Sir, I I fear my present discontent does not proceed from a good root that i am so well content to be nothing that is dead but sir though my fortune hath made me such as that i am rather a sickness or a disease of the world than any part of it and therefore neither love it nor life yet i would gladly live to become some such thing as you should not repent loving me sir your own soul cannot be more zealous for your good than i am and god who loves that zeal in me will not suffer you to doubt it you would pity me now if you saw me right for my pain hath drawn my head so much awry and holds it so that my eye cannot follow my pen i therefore receive you into my prayers with mine own weary soul and commend myself to yours i doubt not but next week will bring you good news for I have either mending or dying on my side. But if I do continue longer thus, I shall have comfort in this, that my blessed Saviour, in exercising his justice upon my two worldly parts, my fortune and my body, reserve all his mercy for that which most needs it my soul, which is, I doubt, too like a porter that is very often near the gate, and yet goes not out sir i profess to you truly that my loathness to give over writing now seems to myself a sign that i shall write no more your poor friend and god's poor patient john Donne, september seven. by this you have seen a part of the picture of his narrow fortune and the perplexities of his generous mind and thus it continued with him for about two years, all which time his family remained constantly at Mitcham, and to which place he often retired himself, and destined some days to a constant study of some points of controversy betwixt the English and Roman church, and especially those of supremacy and allegiance. And to that place and such studies he could willingly have wedded himself during his life, but the earnest persuasion of friends became at last to be so powerful as to cause the removal of himself and family to london where sir robert drury a gentleman of a very noble estate and a more liberal mind assigned him and his wife a useful apartment in his own large house in drury lane and not only rent free but was also a cherisher of his studies and such a friend as sympathized with him and his in all their joy and sorrows. At this time of Mr. Dunn's and his wife living in Sir Robert's house, the Lord Hay was, by King James, sent upon a glorious embassy to the then French king, Henry the Fourth, and Sir Robert put on a sudden resolution to accompany him to the French court and to be present at his audience there. And Sir Robert put on a sudden resolution to solicit Mr. Dunn to be his companion in that journey. And this desire was suddenly made known to his wife, who was then with child, and otherwise under so dangerous a habit of body, as to her health, that she professed an unwillingness to allow him any absence from her, saying, her divining soul boded her some ill in his absence and therefore desired him not to leave her this made mr donne lay aside all thoughts of the journey and really to resolve against it but sir robert became restless in his persuasions for it and mr donne was so generous as to think he had sold his liberty when he received so many charitable kindnesses from him and told his wife so who did therefore with an unwilling willingness give a faint consent to the journey which was proposed to be but for two months for about that time they determined their return within a few days after this resolve the ambassador sir robert and mr Dunn left london and were the twelfth day got all safe to paris two days after their arrival there mr dunn was left alone in that room in which sir robert and he and some other friends had dined together to this place sir robert returned within half an hour and as he left so he found mr dunn alone but in such an ecstasy and so altered as to his looks as amazed sir robert to behold him insomuch that he earnestly desired mr donne to declare what had befallen him in the short time of his absence to which mr donne was not able to make a present answer but after a long and perplexed pause did at last say i have seen a dreadful vision since i saw you i have seen my dear wife pass twice by me through this room with her hair hanging about her shoulders and a dead child in her arms this i have seen since i saw you to which sir robert replied sure sir you have slept since i saw you and this is the result of some melancholy dream which i desire you to forget for you are now awake to which mr dunn's reply was i cannot be surer that i now live than that i have not slept since i saw you and am as sure that at her second appearing she stopped and looked at me in the face and vanished rest and sleep had not altered mr dunn's opinion the next day for he then affirmed this vision with a more deliberate and so confirmed a confidence that he inclined sir robert to a faint belief that the vision was true. It is truly said that desire and doubt have no rest, and it proved so with Sir Robert, for he immediately sent a servant to Drury House, with a charge to hasten back and bring him word whether Mrs. Dunn was alive and, if alive, in what condition she was as to her health. The twelfth day the messenger returned with this account that he found and left mrs dunn very sad and sick in her bed and that after a long and dangerous labor she had been delivered of a dead child and upon examination the abortion proved to be the same day and about the very hour that mr dunn affirmed he saw her pass by him in his chamber this is a relation that will beget some wonder and it may well, for most of our world are at present possessed with an opinion that visions and miracles are ceased. And though it is most certain that two lutes, being both strung and tuned to an equal pitch, and then one played upon, the other that is not touched being laid upon a table at a fit distance, will, like an echo to a trumpet, warble a faint audible harmony in answer to the same tune, yet many will not believe there is any such thing as a sympathy of souls, and I am well pleased that every reader do enjoy his own opinion. But if the unbelieving will not allow the believing reader of this story a liberty to believe that it may be true, then I wish him to consider many wise men have believed that the ghost of julius caesar did appear to brutus and that both st austin and monica his mother had visions in order to his conversion and though these and many others too many to name have but the authority of human story yet the incredible reader may find in the sacred story first samuel twenty eight fourteen that Samuel did appear to Saul even after his death. Whether really or not, I undertake not to determine. And Bildad, in the book of Job, says these words, 4, 13 through 16 A spirit passed before my face, the hair of my head stood up, fear and trembling came upon me and made all my bones to shake upon which words I will make no comment, but leave them to be considered by the incredulous reader, to whom I will also commend this following consideration, that there be many pious and learned men, that believe our merciful God hath assigned to every man a particular guardian angel to be his constant monitor, and to attend him in all his dangers, both of body and soul. And the opinion that every man hath his particular angel, may gain some authority by the relation of Saint Peter's miraculous deliverance out of prison, Acts chapter twelve seven through ten, and thirteen and fifteen, not by many but by one angel, and this belief may yet gain more credit by the readers considering that when Peter, after his enlargement, knocked at the door of mary the mother of john and rhoda the maid-servant being surprised with joy that peter was there did not let him in but ran in haste and told the disciples who were then and there met together that peter was at the door and they not believing it said she was mad yet when she again affirmed it though they then believed it not yet they concluded and said It is his angel. End of chapter 1, part 1